Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hello, everyone, and thank you for making Top Docs Radio a part of your day today. I'm very pleased to be bringing you this special feature today that's been uh, made possible largely in part with a collaboration with the Northside Cancer Institute. We're getting to sit down with a panel of their cancer experts that uh, deal with lung cancer, and uh, it's a very important topic. I'm glad that we're going to get to share some information with the community about this today, learn a little about the uh, disease. I didn't realize the extent to which it affects us. It's the leading cause of cancer death in the United States, and uh, you know something I learned along with that is that even uh, more troubling than that here in Georgia, uh, we have a little bit higher rate of death at when we do develop lung cancer than the rest of the United States. So it's something that we wanted to learn a little bit more about. How do we prevent it and uh, how do we catch it early if we are um, somebody that either ourselves or our loved one developed the disease? So I'll jump right into it. We've got a full panel today, so I'll get down and introduce our guests today. We're joined by a pulmonologist, Dr. Howard Silverboard of uh, Pulmonology and Critical Care Associates. That's pretty close. Hi, I'm Howard Silverboard. <laughs> Correct me then. Go ahead. It's Pulmonary and Critical Care of Atlanta. Um, my, my bad. I didn't write it down very, very well. And uh, we're, we're joined by uh, thoracic surgeon Dr. John Goldman. That's correct. And uh, medical oncologist Dr. Lejo Simpson. Good afternoon, Atlanta. And we're very pleased to be rejoined by Dr. Nancy Wiggers of the Radiation Oncology Service there at uh, Northside. And thanks for having us back. And so getting right down to you know, our topic here today for, for lung cancer. We'll start with you, uh, uh, Dr. Silverboard, since uh, as a pulmonologist, you're going to be probably right there on the front line dealing with a patient who's coming to you either for screening, hopefully, uh, or if not, presenting with some symptoms that could indicate that they might be, you know, developing some trouble that could potentially be lung cancer. So kind of take me through a little bit about, you know, what are the screening options out there available for somebody? It doesn't sound like, as I was kind of researching a little bit before the show, that there really are a lot of screening options available. They're kind of limited right now, but uh, tell us a little bit about how it can be discovered early, and then we can kind of get down into other options from there. Sure. Well, um, first of all, screening is not really a new idea in terms of trying to discover cancer early. It's even in focusing on lung cancer, it's something that's been studied since the 50s. There's been really several dozen studies that have been done over the last 50 or 60 years and it's only been fortunately in the last two years they finally had a study that had positive outcome and that's looking at low dose CT imaging now you know we should be very <clears throat> careful when talking about CT imaging that we want to clarify for our audience that we're talking about low dose CT imaging because that's really actually quite different from what the lay audience might understand as a CT imaging. Low-dose CT imaging has the benefits of having significantly lower radiation dose, and that's why I'm sort of taking pains to say low-dose CT imaging rather than CT imaging, because I would say even amongst the medical community, I, I do not believe that majority of physicians understand yet that when they're ordering this lung cancer screening test, it needs to be ordered as a low-dose CT rather than just a traditional CT. The differences in radiation are actually a lot. And, and on that note, I was going to ask you, I mean, how, is it possible that somebody could write for an, an order, say I'm a primary care physician and I want to have a patient screened and I write for a lung cancer screening CT, is it possible that I could, if I'm a patient and I haven't become familiar with this type of information that there's actually a, a key differentiating you know, dose there that, uh, that I could end up getting a regular CT scan? So I think it's probably reasonable to expect that all the radiologists that might see this order, if it was written as a lung cancer screening test, would know that it's meant to be low-dose CT. And I think, you know, we're not it's a well-known phenomenon in medicine in general that it takes about five years from the time that a new innovation is occurs before physicians really start to adopt it. I mean, that's something that's been proven 
across the board in a number of fields. That, so, you know, the, the latest study, the one that I'm referring to that showed a survival benefit, really was only two years ago. So we're still in that sort of early phase of getting majority of our physicians to recognize the importance of this test. And I think for certain, you know, patients are not really realizing just yet, which is what I think is why it's important that we have this forum today, mm-hmm. that there is a screening option available. I think at this point in time, a lot of people, many people are familiar with the importance of a mammogram or a colonoscopy to screen right. for those kinds of cancers. But I don't think that, the, you know, the majority of people are aware that there is something proving mortality benefit for lung cancer. And from the standpoint of access to one of these studies, how available is the low-dose CT scan machine that you would need to get seen by? Fortunately, that actually in the last few years is becoming readily accessible. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons out there why people have advocated against CT imaging for this process. If you can, if you can imagine, let me sort of back up for a second. I think, you know. We, the, the big picture or the problem here that we're trying to address is that lung cancer in general is not diagnosed until it's late stage. Statistically speaking, the vast majority of patients don't even show up to see a doctor until they have advanced stage, and there's significantly limited amounts of things that can be done at that point. Right. So it's important that we diagnose these people earlier. Now, that being said, People for many years have advocated against CT imaging, not just because there wasn't data to suggest that it prov- you know, provided a benefit, but also there's, there was concern in the past about what the downsides might be, including um, the radiation as well as the cost to society. In other words, if you calculate what the cost is to, we'll say, Medicare for doing CT imaging on all the smokers, I mean, you're talking about a tremendous Right. added cost to our budget, especially these days when we all know what a difficult deal that is. So um, fortunately, you can really, around town, and at, at Northside, I know you can get a CT screening test for about $150. So the cost of it's really dramatically come down, whereas not so long ago, it was probably 10 times that amount. Now, you know, obviously getting that type of screening test done at a you know, early point, really before you're symptomatic is ideal. Talk a little bit about who really should kind of be thinking about that. I mean, obviously you can go on the radio and they talk about the cardiac screening tests and everybody's advertising for those now and the cost is dropping because of that. But from the standpoint of folks out there listening today, you know, for thinking about themselves or their loved ones, uh, who, who really needs to be the ones that are considering, maybe I should go for this test to get it done now? Well, I'm, I'll try not to be too technical, but sure. <laughs> when, um, the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial came out two years ago, which is sort of what I'm ref- keep referencing, which is the, the sort of big trial that got everybody's attention. The, the National Cancer Institute essentially adopt the guidelines that was used in that study. And so basically, Northside has adopted those same guidelines. So we're adopting the same principles that are you know, used nationwide and suggested by the National Cancer Institute. And basically that is focusing on a patient population that's aged 55 to 75, that were relatively recent smokers, people that smoked within the last 15 years, people that had more than a 30-pack year history. We define pack year history as smoked a pack a day per year. So if you smoke a pack a day for 30 years, that's that's a 30-pack year history. Gotcha. And then, and then it would be people with an attention to treat. In other words, there's, if, if somebody's health is so bad that you wouldn't do anything about the results, that would not be an appropriate candidate. Right. Um, when you when you talk about high risk, so it's this the, the 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 person that's been a heavy smoker, they've been smoking up until pretty recently. What about uh, family history? How important is that? Obviously, in cardiology, that's a big deal, but. Uh, as it relates to you know my oncology risk, particularly for lung cancer, since that's our topic today, how much does that play into me being at risk? Well, I think that's another um, factor that needs to be considered. I think that we all need to consider, when you say family history, that really needs to be further differentiated. Obviously, it means a lot more to a physician if it's a first-degree relative versus if it's, say, a third cousin. Mm-hmm. So I think a careful history needs to be taken and, and to try to determine what that risk is. The The highest recommendation is based upon smoking history and 
their duration and you know that that risk factor they're in their age I'm sorry the, the family history is another consideration but it doesn't fall into the slam-dunk bucket mm -hmm. so if somebody say calls our hotline and speaks to a screener they're gonna go by the simplest criteria if a person has if a person doesn't necessarily meet those criteria but has other factors which need to be considered those people still might get screened but it's gonna they're probably gonna be put in touch with a, a physician in order to just in order to discuss if that's really recommended because quite frankly we don't want to start ordering tests on people that don't really need them right obviously since you know some of those imaging um, options you know are going to involve radiation of some kind that obviously brings its own risk as well now are there any other kind of marker studies that you can do that are maybe blood related that would indicate you know the presence or risk for, you know whether it's a genetic factor or something like that I know that in some other cancers they're able to kind of get into at least some measure of risk anyway but not necessarily presence but at least higher risk is there something like that that one could follow or no I would say that there are some markers but really they're all in their infancy and they haven't we're not really at a phase yet where we can go to the general public and say this is an accurate screening device or screening tool like say for example probably a lot of people are familiar with prostate specific antigen or the PSA test for prostate cancer right. we don't really have something that's easily applicable at this point in time. We've been talking with Dr. Howard Silverboard, pulmonologist who's a part of the Northside Cancer Institute team and uh, learning a little bit about screening for lung uh, cancer. Um, let's, you know, kind of, you know, obviously understanding that, you know, particularly if you're a person that either you or your loved one has been a smoker for a long period of time, obviously here in the southeast we're faced with high levels of radon gas, which whether or not you're aware of that can certainly, if you're exposed to it over a long period of time, and if you're a smoker on top of that, can really heighten your risk from what I understand as it relates to developing lung cancer. So among those folks that uh, are in that higher risk group that need to get screened, you know, take me to what happens now if something comes back, they get the low dose CT scan and up there looks like something that's out of the ordinary on the image. Take me through what we're going to do next, where we start getting down into determining what it is and, and uh, getting into the treatment of the disease. Well, I think another thing that <laughs> this is really gets into a whole, we could spend two hours on this one question, but I think that, again, if we're focusing on the high risk patient, then I think a real careful consideration needs to be made about what abnormality is seen if there's an abnormality seen. Now, that being said, 50% of people in Atlanta are going to have an abnormality on their CAT scan, regardless of whether or not they're a smoker. Wow. And that's just on the basis of probably our demographics, the air quality, a number of different things. Um, but I think that, you know, what happens is, is a number of physicians will look at these scans typically. I'll look at a scan with a radiologist. There's a number of different characteristics that we look at on an abnormality to determine if something further needs to be done. Typically, if something is seen, they will be recommended to have a follow-up study in three to six months, depending on the characteristics. So the majority of people that have a scan are going to have, if there's an abnormality found, are going to have some kind of follow-up testing done. It is recommended that even if the scan is completely stone-cold normal, that they have a follow-up scan in a year. And basically the criteria we're looking at now, again, based on the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial, is that they have a follow-up CT scan until they've had one annually for three years. So we're not advocating that a person who's had a scan at the age of 55 has one for 20 years until they're 75. I think right. we don't really know at this juncture how long that needs to occur. That's something that we're, we're looking at. Um, but I think for right now what we're recommending is a patient in a high-risk group has follow-up imaging for a total of three years. And so when when a result comes back that it looks worrisome um, and it's one that, you know, when you see the imaging, you're, you're like, this is very highly probable uh, for lung cancer. Take me through what happens then. Well, so I'm going to go back to a question asked earlier about how um, easy is it to get one of these scans. Well, one of the amazing things is in the last 10 years, the technology of these CT images has just really dramatically improved. And now you can detect, you know, nodules pretty easily that are only two millimeters in size. Wow. So we're finding things that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago were just completely not seen at all. Um, another thing I want to point out is 
one reason why CT imaging is so vastly superior to x-rays is because we're really talking about a totally different technology. I think a lot of people don't quite understand the difference. This is like comparing a, a black and white TV from 1950 to like one of our high def flat screen right. TVs. I mean the quality of the images are just incredible nowadays. So it's, it's many people, not to get off the subject too much, but it's many people that come into our office with an abnormal CT finding and say, well, why wasn't this seen on an x-ray? And that's simply because it's a completely different technology, really. You can see far more detail with the CT. I'm sorry, what, what was your question? <laughs> well, it was basically, you know, when we, when we do go in for that study, and um, you know, you, you're reviewing the, the results of the imaging, and you find that there's, you know, there's a, an abnormality in there that is highly probable based on your experience that this is worrisome. This is something that we need to go in, either do a bronchoscopy and get a sample of it or some sort of a needle biopsy, something like that, that was going to prompt us to action, sure. trying to get an idea of what's the flow from that point for that person that has one that's not on the, on the small end that might end up being some sort of a see me in a few months and let's take another look at it to we got to get you taken care of right now. Well, the number one criteria is going to be size without question. So things that are smaller than five millimeters are, are, are basically things that we're not too concerned about. In fact, if you look at you know, large groups of patients who've had CT imaging, anything that's under five millimeters typically is, you can pretty much count on the fact that it's not gonna be something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, the number, the statistic is about one in a thousand of those nodules is gonna end up being something of significance. So that'd be good for a person too. No, if they get that result back, yes, we saw something. Yes, it's small, but it, you know, while it might be worrisome, yes, we're going to watch it for a little while, but we don't have to necessarily call in the cavalry today. Correct. It's not necessarily negligence to do something like that. Correct. It's actually practicing, you know, conservative medicine as it should be. We're not necessarily going to test, 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 and cut on everything that we find. That's correct. Okay. So when when you do find that, you know, that one that you look at and you're like, okay, we gotta we gotta call everybody in here. How does it flow from there? Who is who are you going to send me to, or are you going to be doing the, the biopsy t on, on me as a pulmonologist, or are you going to send me to somebody for that kind of study to determine if this finding is actually, in fact, cancer and, and what type it is and go from there? Well, I think when we make a decision, this is, you know, really the most important decision that as a lung physician that we make, which is, which is how do we diagnose make a diagnosis of whatever process is going on. And I think the answer has always got to be, what's the safest thing for the patient? So we make those decisions based on location in the lung and size. Things that are located closer to the chest wall are going to be pretty easily accessible by CT-guided needle biopsy. And it, you know, you have to make decisions on these things based on what your institution does well. And I can tell you that it, at Northside, at our institution, the radiology department does a very superior job at doing CT-guided needle biopsies, and we found that they have very high rate of diagnosis with a very low complication rate. So if something's you know close to the chest wall, meaning they don't have to go through a lot of normal tissue or dangerous structures to get to it, that would be a preferred choice. Um, if something has a more central location, meaning it's closer to the windpipe or more interior, we can reach that through bronchoscopy. There are other, you know, lesions that are, are somewhat difficult, and quite frankly, we discuss many of those cases at our multidisciplinary conference, and we'll go over a complicated case like that with our surgeons and, and other physicians to determine what the safest thing is. So my answer is there's not sort of one size fits all, it kind of depends. So when you have a finding, the, the one that's obviously kind of worrisome, then you might actually be collaborating with some of the other members here of the, of the panel to kind of determine, all right, this is what we're seeing, this is what we recommend. Because from what I understand, once those findings come back from your biopsy and you've determined whether it's small cell or non-small cell, and obviously there's a couple of types of those, um, once you've learned what the cell type is and when we've determined, yes, in fact, it's cancer, from what I understand, there's some variation in terms of where you might go, whether it's to the medical oncologist first or to the surgeon first, um, to proceed with you know jumping down into treatment, which is kind of where we want to shift gears to now. Is we've been some, done some pre-screening, and I forgot to ask, as it relates to screening, are, are those things out of pocket paid for by a patient, or are they paid for by or reimbursed by insurance in some cases? Well, that's I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> 
Um, that has been something that's been a real concern over the last several years. Now, fortunately, many of our third-party payers are going to start paying for it beginning in January of 2015. So I think ultimately that concern is going to go away. I do think that the out-of-pocket expense at most at this point is now, you know, $150 or less. So, I, I, you know, that may still be um, a barrier for some folks, but we do also have some capability to help um, patients who have difficulty paying that fee. So I, I think that ultimately third-party payers are going to pay for that, um, but even if a patient doesn't have insurance, I, I think we have ways to, to help get that patient access to care so that they can have a screening test. That's great. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that at least at some point in the relatively near future there may be some additional support for a patient to be able to get screened because obviously that early stage disease, whatever we're talking about, is obviously going to be much less expensive and the outcome is going to be so much better uh, for, for the patient in the end. So uh, that's good to know that they're going to be supporting screening a little bit more effectively coming up. So once I've got my results back, I've got XYZ type of cancer. Obviously, from what I understand, as I looked a little bit before the show, sounds like there's a very large group of patients. The largest group of patients have what's called non-small cancer and then a very you know a relatively small group has one the small cell cancers and it has its own implications so we can, I guess we can start with the larger group first which is the adenocarcinoma this uh, the uh, squamous cell and and the other types of non-small cancers once once we have that identified where am I going to go and what kind of leads me to Dr. Simpson or Dr. Goldman or, you know, down that path. So, so you're right. As a lung physician, we're pretty heavy on the diagnostics, meaning we, you know, we do a lot of the upfront work trying to figure out what it is. And then once the diagnosis is made, then we essentially get the patient to either a surgeon who, for what is generally early stage disease, resectable disease. Um, if it's felt that a patient does not have resectable disease, then they typically will see an oncologist. There are situations in which they, you know, patient will see both, you know, at the same time. Um, but I would say in general, if I could be real simple about this, patients either have surgical resectable disease or they don't. And that's not always true. And I certainly want to hear what Dr. Goulden has to say about that. But yeah. Go ahead. Talk to us a little bit. About, you know, we've identified it. We're, we, we think that they're probably going to require some kind of surgery or, or at least a procedure of some kind to surgically remove it, whether it's minimally invasive or more invasive. So talk a little about, you know, the flow for you as that patient arrives at your office. Yeah, this is a common scenario and we see it every week in the office. Somebody presents and they had a finding on a scan and uh, most of our lung cancers are found incidentally uh, related to something else because the lung screening hasn't become widespread yet. We're seeing a lot on the calcium scoring CT for heart disease. Um, we peop have people who have a a fall or a trauma or something else and they have an x-ray done that finds something or a CT scan um, but you know the questions we're looking at are twofold uh, number one uh, is it a resectable process meaning we're mainly talking about stage one and stage two and I'll kind of briefly summarize that in a minute and then the finally are they medically operable uh, whether is their heart and lung function adequate is their general physical status adequate uh, to tolerate a surgery and there's a lot of testing that goes into both of those things um, if you look um, at staging and this is an oversimplification but uh, stage one is usually a small tumor confined to one area of the lung stage two you start to see some lymph nodes just very close to the primary tumor within the lung involved and stage three is outside of the lung into regional lymph nodes stage four is distant spread of the disease and surgery really has a benefit for stage one and two there are cases where we do uh, surgeries on stage three and less commonly even stage four um, we are seeing more and more situations is uh, our chemotherapy and other treatment options with uh, radiation uh, etc have become more successful where we are seeing those people later on with stage three and four processes that that we are selectively uh, doing surgery on. But again, those usually go through a multidisciplinary conference and discussion. Uh, it's not just a, a you know, uh, yeah, I think he needs an operation type thing. It's, right. it's, it's, it's well discussed and thought out uh, right. beforehand. 
But stage one and two are the ones we're really focusing on. Those are also the ideal candidates most of the time for a minimally invasive approach. And uh, as far as the uh, looking at the testing, for, are they operable? Most everybody uh, is going to get, uh, during their workup, they have their CT scan. Uh, many of them, most all of them, are going to receive a PET scan. And that's a, an additional testing with the CT to look for other evidence that the tumor may have spread. Then, not always, but most of the time, they're going to get an MRI of the brain. Uh, silent metastasis of the brain, while not common, maybe 5 or 10% of the time, even with, with what otherwise looks like an early stage cancer. Um, so we don't want to miss that. Uh, when we're op you don't want to do a big operation and then shortly thereafter find a brain lesion when the symptoms do develop. And I guess that's one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why that it, you know, the risk for the metastasis or involvement or expansion into some of the lymph nodes comes from the fact that we're talking about an internal organ as opposed to something like a, a soft tissue cancer, like a breast cancer that's more external. It's in the soft tissue. You can palpate it, and if you're doing surgery, for example, then you can actually surgically remove the lymph nodes to get to what they call the clean margins. It's a little bit more of a difficult beast to do that when we're talking about those internal pathways, I suppose. Correct. And, and one of the other things that's important for uh, not only physicians, but lay people and patients as well, is the difference in when we're talking about staging. Before surgery, when we're looking at a CT scan and a PET scan, the brain scans, that is called what we call a clinical staging. And that's actually an estimation. It's not a, the final path report. And obviously, uh, I think people can understand that microscopic spread of tumor may not be large enough to show up on a scan. You know, the pathologist may have to look with a microscope at the lymph nodes to find that it's spread. So, you know, 10 to 20 percent of patients will be upstaged based on their final path report when a pathologist examines a lung specimen and all the regional lymph nodes that we take out at surgery. So, there, there can be a difference in that at clinical staging and the final pathologic staging. And, and that's one thing I try and tell patients up front so that they aren't surprised on the other end if there is a difference. And from what I understand, that, that there are some situations, depending on the type of cancer, where the patient, you know, has a potential, you know, uh, lesion that's operable or at least, you know, with whether it's invasive, uh, you know, aggressive like wedge kind of section or something less invasive, uh, there are some situations where Dr. Simpson might be able to treat the patient with some medical oncology uh, medications or approaches that would shrink the size of the tumor before you go do your surgery or, or well, am I on track? Usually for a stage one or stage two process, we're usually talking, the first question, are they an operative candidate? Because that's the gold standard for, gotcha. for treating them. Um, and the ones that you don't know about or come up with some lymph nodes in the, in the N1 nodes, which makes it a stage two, they will receive some chemotherapy, what we call adjuvant therapy, afterward. Um, the, uh, usually we're talking about a, uh, a more advanced stage two or stage three process. That if we're going to give them chemo or chemo and radiation up front to, to what we call downstage it, we right. want to shrink it, uh, hopefully get rid of some nodal disease, that type of thing before surgery. Uh, we've been talking with Dr. John Gouldman, the thoracic surgeon who uh, works with patients who've developed lung cancer from a surgical perspective as part of the Northside Cancer Institute cancer team. And so with that kind of option, I mean, how often do you see once that patient is kind of in that kind of middle two and three that they can actually, you know, have the surgery, you know, give them a prolonged, you know, survival and, and a, you know, stronger outcome? Um, I think a lot of the time, I think, uh, if you look at all comers for lung cancer and we have patients come to the office and they've already looked on there and they're coming very depressed and dejected, um, you know, the long-term survival for all comers with lung cancer is, is only, you know, 10, 15, 20% uh, for five years. And that's terrible. And, uh, but we also know from some of the lung screening trials, if you catch it early, that the early stage ones have 92% five year and, 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 uh, and you know, even over 85% 10 year survival. Well, I think that that type of information right there is very critical and it's one of the reasons why I really believe in this type of panel show for our audience because 
it really drives home the need for the folks that are out there in that high-risk population. Let's face it, if I'm a smoker or my loved one's a mm -hmm. smoker, we really need to kind of think about the reality that lung cancer is a possibility and then get some of that screening done, even if you're terrified of what it might tell you. I mean, how many times do, do people not go get a test just because they're afraid of what it'll tell them? Don't do that as, as it relates to um, you know, the possibility being, in, in this case, uh, that your outcome could be potential that you do have lung cancer. Because as Dr. Goldman is, is describing, that if you are one of those folks that goes for that screening test and you get it caught early, then very good chance that uh, when you leave his office and his care after a while, you're going to be you know, in that group that's got the very high rate of, uh, of survival. So we're certainly pleased to be putting that kind of information out there. Um, it, you know, how does it work as it relates to collaborating with you know, radiation oncology and medical oncology from the surgical perspective? At what point, how does that flow? I know that uh, you know, you know, this is obviously with pulmonology as part of it, where it's a multidisciplinary team. How does it work when are you when when a person comes in? We've determined yes, they're they're a lung cancer patient. And we're going to be collaborating. Are there some kind of regular conversations that are happening amongst the members? You know, either electronically or telephonically, or even in person, perhaps to talk about a particular case and and how we're going to attack it from a treatment perspective. I think it's all of the above. We have a, a regular multidisciplinary conference, and most of the cases uh, get discussed, and a lot of them are. Uh, what you would think are relatively straightforward stage one uh, that don't meet an indication for say uh, chemotherapy but I tell all patients uh, I don't say you don't need to go see an oncologist I say if you want to see one we'll be happy to for you to see them and get an opinion and a lot of patients want that comfort to at least have the opinion some are fine and, and, and we, we do follow all of our lung cancer patients though uh, with scans afterward and uh, the general consensus is about every six months for five years uh, if, if we have a patient we're uh, worried about, uh, say, one of those very small lesions that's too small to worry with or uh, to do anything with now, or if we have somebody where we're concerned over a very high risk of recurrence, it may be every three months. But uh, in general, it's about every six months for five years. Okay. And, you know, I'll jump over with... Uh, with with you, Dr. Simpson, you know, take me through a little bit about you know the process for you when this patient comes across your door in the in the office. Um, you know, what are your first thoughts? What are your first concerns? And then we can kind of jump down into how you develop the plan of care. So one of the first things that we do is actually establish an empathetic relationship with the patient. Many times when patients walk in through the door, they've had just a lot of information, but we are just not sure how much that information has distilled down into the patient. You know, this is whole thing about listening and hearing. So one of the first things we do is actually ask the patient, because they've seen physicians before, and so we ask them what they have heard so far, what they understand uh -huh. so far, and then we build up from there. Now, uh, again, the question is why is the patient really there at that point in time? But the first thing is the patient should feel like they have an ally on their side. Towards that end, uh, the, <clears throat> the lung cancer navigators help quite a lot to answer questions for patients, especially when they're not in with the physician per se. And you know, ha uh, putting aside the time to talk to the patient is, is really important uh, over there. Now, you know, lung cancer, uh, historically, we have not done very well in lung cancer, but recently, you know, with all the, mm, with our ability to interrogate the genome, and not just uh, interrogate the genome to get data, but we have actionable data from the genome of every patient's individual cancer. So that actually is changing lung cancer really on its head at a much more rapid rate than has kind of happened in, in history. When you say in, interrogate the genome, you're, you're saying you can actually get down and learn about the DNA, the, the genetic material you know, that, that comprises this cancer. Exactly. You know, um, the old way to look at cancers is to look at the size of the cancer on a CAT scan. The new way, which is probably the better way, is to actually understand what makes the cancer tick. So you can have small cancer. So for instance, you can have a stage one lung cancer that is fully resected, but 30% of stage one lung cancers do recur within five years, in spite of having complete removal of that lung cancer. So you can have small cancers that recur, and you can also have large cancers that are resected but don't come back. So there's something in every cancer that makes it behave differently than what you think it will do. So we think a cancer might do something, but actually it wants to do something else. And so the secrets really lie in the genome uh, in, in, in every individual cancer. 
Nowadays, the technology to sequence the genome has really become mainstream. All of our clinical trials involve sequencing the genome in some capacity or the other, and uh, tissue is being archived so that if we learn about you know newer uh, genetic mutations that can be targeted, then they will become actionable in the in the near future. So you know, there's always a so that's part of the discussion that we have uh, with with patients uh, up front. Now, uh, the management of every patient with lung cancer is very multidisciplinary, i.e., you know, we, we always contact the thoracic surgeon. We always do have at least a curbside with the radiation oncologist. The pulmonary medicine doc uh, is always a part of the, of the discussion also. In fact, I tell a lot of my patients, and everybody says, turn off your phone when you're with the patient, but I tell my patient, I'm going to send a message to so-and-so doc. So you know, he might reply right. like right now. And I think that's very good. Patients kind of should feel that. I would like that if you were doing that with I, with me there. So if I'm ever your patient, hopefully not. But if so, text away. Yeah, if you do the lung cancer screening, you should not be my patient. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, so, uh, and then the lung cancer conference is very good. And then at the back end in our uh, Northside Hospital Cancer Institute, we have the lung cancer research group, which meets very regularly. Uh, to kind of get our newer cancer uh, treatments uh, kind of lined up to, to decide which is best for our program and uh, ultimately what is good for our patients. Now we have to put all of that together for the individual patient uh, under consideration. Now for instance, you know, if the patient is not a good candidate for surgery, really the question is, is it because the cancer is too large, in which case our job uh, is to shrink the cancer either through the medicines that we have or with uh, Dr. Wigger's help. Or is the patient in really bad physical condition as a result of which the patient cannot have surgery, in which case Dr. Wiggers has these very good uh, the treatments, this is called stereotactic radiosurgery, uh, with like 92%, you know, two to five year control rate, which is comparable to surgery. Uh, and so those are really the big questions uh, that we have. And then also to find, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> whether patients are eligible for any uh, clinical trials uh, at that point in time, or down the road. So if you are one of those patients that, you know, the type of cancer that you have or your clinical situation is one that presents itself to be included in one of those studies, does that mean then that you're actually able to be receiving maybe some investigational treatment modalities, whether it's a medicine or, or other interventional type approach? Is that, is that what you're going to actually get to do? Um, yes. So, you know, again, um, so most uh, so the question really is is how can the information you get that you have with you at that point in time guide the patient's treatment now um, the most important thing is that discussion with the patient like for instance you know you can you know if you have a young patient with a stage one lung cancer and you're like you know hey listen you're probably cured but you know there's a 30 percent chance that this cancer can come back there is a national trial ongoing, basically, in terms of with these patients to decide whether they should get chemotherapy or not to decrease that recurrence risk further. So those are options that patients have to know about, which is available uh, in terms of in our clinical research uh, arena. Uh, for the, now, the National Cancer Institute is just opening a big trial called the Alchemy Trial, which is, again, for all patients who have surgically resected disease, the genome is going to be interrogated uh, centrally. And then if they have an EGFR mutation, they get a targeted therapy called Tarsiva. If they have an ALK mutation, they get a targeted therapy called Crizotinib. Uh, and then the tissue is archived so that if more mutations are discovered down the road, we can share that information with the patient. Or in the event that the cancer comes back, then we have better uh, ways of treating patients. Now, one of the best things about the newer treatments is the low side effect profile. Mm -hmm. Historically, our chemotherapy has been associated with nausea, vomiting, hair loss, risk of infections, death also, mm -hmm. uh, directly as a result of chemotherapy. But our newer drugs have much lower uh, side effect profile, both in terms of intensity and uh, also most of them are tablets. So we are able to treat a lot of patients with tablets if they have very specific genetic mutations. And that's another way in which our treatment of lung cancer has really kind of you know, turned upside down. Yeah. And that's why you know, lung cancer in itself has become like a very complicated field involving a lot of uh, multidisciplinary discussion, research as a strong component of that management, and overall you know, to find a good outcome for our patients. Well, it's exciting to hear about the, the developments that you spoke about in terms of like the genetic mapping and the things like that that can let you get very specific with regards to the medicines you'd go to first. Uh, maybe this one over that one that otherwise before you had that data available, you would kind of have a, you know, a regimen of medicines that we start with, but then 
find out kind of more by trial and error that this one's not responding uh, like we thought it would. So now we got to switch. You actually can have, you know, almost a roadmap uh, of where to start from a choice of medicines or therapies that you're going to uh, utilize. So that's uh, that's very encouraging news. And if I'm, if, you know, once I'm this patient and I'm in your care and we've already, you know, gone through my treatment, I, I, sound, I assume based on the rate of recurrence, I'm going to be seeing you for a period of time. Uh, on an ongoing basis. Yes, one of the questions that patients ask us, ask us frequently is, you know, after surgical resection of my cancer, why am I coming back to see you? Right. And, you know, I mean, technically the cancer is gone, so why, what am I doing seeing a medical oncologist for, right. for quite a while? <laughs> and really the reason is recurrence rate of lung cancer is very high, almost, we would say, unacceptably high. And right. the younger you are, the more unacceptably high it is, and that's the reason why we continue to follow patients with or without scans uh, at least till five years um, to pick up early the recurrences should they happen. We've been talking with Dr. Lee Joe Simpson, medical oncologist who's a part of the Northside Cancer Institute oncology team. And if I'm in that group uh, that does recur, how does it flow for me there? I mean, is, is my, how does that affect my outcome from that point? Is it, is it now a higher risk for a bad outcome if I'm a recurrence, or is it more or less a, kind of a, a new ball game at that point that depends on what we're seeing now? Do you see what I'm saying? Does, does the fact that it's a recurrence have more ill omen for me as a patient versus just a first-time diagnosis? So most of the time, uh, it is worse when the cancer comes back. Really, the determinant for that is how much disease has come back. Is it like in a very limited area? Is it like, you know, uh, extensive to other organs that weren't involved initially? The location of that spread, like if any cancer involves the brain, then that usually uh, has a much worse outcome. Uh, so there are many questions that need to be answered at that point in time. The workup starts once again. We get whole body imaging, including an MRI of the brain. And uh, preferably, we do re-biopsy the patient at uh, the time of relapse. The reason is you want to interrogate the genome again to find out, are there new mutations? Are we dealing with the same cancer? And, uh, you know, there's one person missing here. That's the pathologist who can often give you a lot of information about what they see under the microscope. In particular, they are able to compare it visually with the prior cancer and say, you know what, this looks similar to what was there before. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of helps you a lot in knowing is this, you know, patients, for instance, if, if you smoke, you can always have a second lung cancer because it's, it's, the concept is called the field defect. So the, uh, the carcinogens in the tobacco smoke go all over your lung. So even if you take out a cancer in one spot, the damage at a genetic level that can predispose uh, a patient to cancer exists in other part of the lungs too. Right. So you can have a new primary lung cancer. So everything has to be kind of, uh, you know, kind of has to fall together. The multidisciplinary approach has to come in again. We make a determination as to whether this is a new primary or this is systemic spread. We look at how much disease is present, preferably interrogate the genome again, uh, try to find the least uh, toxic treatment options for our patients. I know that uh, as it relates to the breast population, the breast cancer population from our previous panel show where we discussed it, that um, elements like nutritional changes, some of them, you know, fairly sizable, but some making some changes with regards to the diet, doing some things like, you know, the exercise regimens, getting supported emotionally and psychologically, all those things can actually play a role in, in helping the outcome and, and even somewhat, you know, I guess a, to some degree affecting in some patients whether or not they recur, for example, once they've had a problem with a cancer. Does that hold true in this population as well? Are there some things that they can do from a you know, patient at home doing their own patient homework kind of perspective that they can at least mitigate the, the chances that they would be in that group that recurs? So the single most important thing is uh, quit smoking. And, you know, in all our studies, because uh, tobacco smoke is such a, is such a high uh, risk uh, causative event for lung cancer, it's kind of hard to tease that out and bring in the other variables like obesity, diet, so on and so forth. I see. So, you know, the most important thing, the treatment of lung cancer starts with uh, counseling patients on stopping the use of tobacco. As part of the, you know, program, I'm certain that there's got to be some resources available through my interaction with your team that would help me with that. I think, <clears throat> I think what you're getting at is what we call survivorship. Right. And that's something that we've really worked hard to create. and. 
that is really having comprehensive care after the diagnosis of cancer, after the patient's you know, seen a person like Dr. Gouldman or Dr. Simpson or Dr. Wiggers. So let's say a few years out, the patient's thought to have no evidence of disease. It's very important that the patient you know, remain engaged with their physicians, that they continue to have a good surveillance program, that they continue to have good, healthy um, lifestyles. Um, I think you know these things are you know go a long way towards having a more prolonged survivorship, and you know I think it's important that the patient is very involved in this process. I know that there are some additional resources among with kind of built into the the Northside Cancer Institute that are aimed at support that are aimed at you know just from, you know as much as anything the psychological and emotional effects put them with peers that can give them you know some support and, and collaboration on their experience but um, but also some guidance from what I understand that you know you talk about the the navigator program that you have where you're going to be visiting with a, a nurse um, RN I believe most cases but uh, you're going to be interacting with some clinicians along the way that kind of help guide some of those choices that help give you some direction as when you're not in the doctor's office what should you be doing what choices should you be making that will hopefully Hopefully, you know, at least optimize the outcome once you've been into this, you know, journey of dealing with lung cancer. So, behavioral health is an example of of a program that's an important part of survivorship. As I think somebody was already mentioned, it's depression is very common in this patient population. They've been through a lot. You can imagine there's a lot of situational anxieties. You know, many patients have a hard time just making it to their doctor's appointment, whether they have a barrier to transportation or whatever. There's, there's a lot of things that we can offer to help a patient get, get through this whole process. So there's, there's social support, there's behavioral health, there's nutrition, there's pain management, there's a number of different programs that you know, we can offer. Um, are these things that, that in, my, in my doctor's office that either the nursing staff or, or the physician themselves are going to be recommending along the way? I, I imagine from different members of the team, they're going to be recommending resources that are available to the patient across the way. Yes, yeah. and oh, go ahead. the nurse navigator, too, should set, set them up, take them to all their original doctors, try and explain why they're seeing a radiation oncologist, medical oncologist, and they take them through their entire treatment and then through the survivorship. So they follow them the whole way through. And that, that's Dr. Wiggers, the radiation oncologist that's part of the team here dealing with patients that, uh, that are facing lung cancer. So take me through that patient for you, know, for you as it relates to your part of the team. When are you going to be getting involved with that patient and you know, what's the patient that's really going to be needing your care? Yeah, so again, it goes back to that multidisciplinary conference and every patient is an individual. And radiation, like surgery, is a local form of treatment, whereas chemotherapy is systemic, goes throughout the whole body. So after Dr. Gulman does his surgery, if there's a chance that there's microscopic disease left locally, radiation will be called in and we work with Dr. Simpson and medical oncology to formulate a plan um, to give that person better local control. A standard radiation treatment would uh, post-operatively would be a Monday through Friday treatment for about seven weeks um, and radiation can also be used um, in a palliative setting if somebody has metastatic disease to help with the pain or local control in that area and then also in the non-operative setting and Dr. Simpson mentioned we have something called stereotactic radiation which is a um, a newer technology with a very focused radiation beam just to the primary tumor. And so one of the things that you would be looking at, I guess, is if there's lymph node involvement and that kind of thing that would show that it's kind of spread from its initial site and that, that would be a patient that's probably going to be receiving some radiation to try to head those extensions of the cancer to other locations off. Is that what, what you're saying when you talked about the fact that there was some worry that it may have spread from, from its initial site. Correct. So Dr. Goldman, um, if he's done a resection, he's also going to look at the lymph nodes and we analyze those and in our stage three patients we'll give them post-operative treatment for better local control and survival in that case. I got you. And, and w how long does it take? I mean, what's the experience like if I, you know, a patient for whom the radiation oncology is going to be a part of my care plan? What's that process like for me, you know, in terms of, you know, how long does it, you know, can I anticipate it typically going to take to go through a course of treatment and, and what's my follow-up like once I've, you know, completed that treatment? 
So once the team's gotten together and decided the best treatment for the patient, a uh, typical radiation course is going to be 15 minutes a day. Uh, we don't have any needles or knives. We're the good guys, <laughs> we think. <laughs> um, um, and the radiation is, is an x-ray beam, so it's directed at the either tumor bed or primary tumor and regional lymph nodes. And um, it, radiation side effects build up. So um, organs in the treatment field are the ones that affected. So for lung cancer, the skin, the lung tissue itself, if the heart's in the field and the spinal cord, we outline the critical organs and we outline the tumor volume that we want to treat. And we design a radiation field, hopefully blocking out the critical organs as much as possible. We have new technology that helps us set people up three-dimensionally now. Right. We can guide them, uh, do image guidance, and we can actually follow the um, lung tumor as it goes up and down um, during treatment to really tighten the radiation field. Um, so with a very tight, concise field, we hopefully lower the patient's side effects. But the side effects are going to depend on how much of your normal organs are in the field. The main side effect people complain about is a soreness when swallowing because your esophagus lies right there in the middle of all the lymph nodes and is usually in the field. And so when you go through radiation treatment Monday through Friday for six and a half, seven weeks, um, and combine that with uh, chemotherapy, they might get a lot of... Uh, be unable to swallow solid foods or um, sharp type of things. Gotcha. So I won't be able to eat my Doritos if I end up uh, yeah, being stay away from Doritos. Probably have to stay away from my crunchy snacks. Um, but but you know on, on a more serious note, when when you're you know dealing with those types of side effects you describe, from what I understand, you know at least in other areas of the body that I you know mildly familiar with the radiation effects, those typically are transient in most cases are they not if they you know that while i'm getting or at least soon after my radiation therapy that they'll be the worst and then with a little bit of time most of those tend to fade away is that right is that so true? we have acute and chronic side effects and the soreness of the th throat the skin redness that will fade away and the the, the long-term side effects depend on the volume that the radiation went to your normal lung and heart and so the, the lung is a very sensitive tissue to radiation. So sometimes if um, Dr. Silverboard sends a patient over and he has done lung function studies and he's very concerned about his lung dose, he has a large tumor and we show him the volume of lung that we're gonna um, damage with the radiation, um, we work together and he says, you know, no, that's, that's too much. This is not gonna be good for the patient. So we're looking at each patient and quality of life and um, taking a step at a time. Gotcha. We've been talking with Dr. Nancy Wiggers, radiation oncologist as part of the uh, Northside Hospital Cancer Institute uh, oncology team. And, you know, as tends to happen with our panel shows, the, the time goes by very quickly. So, you know, before we have to jump off, I'd just like to go around and, and see if there's maybe a thought or two from each of you that as it relates to kind of your perspective on treating this disease and working with these patients, if you have a thought or two that you'd really like to drive home for folks, I know one or two of them in advance, but uh, I'll give you the chance to go ahead and, and you know, tell that listener out there who, who either they themselves are at risk for cancer or, or their loved one is, or maybe they're in the journey right now dealing with it, what, what would you have to say in terms of closing thoughts before we have to go? Well, <clears throat> I think it's really important that a patient be their own advocate. I think, you know, a lot of times the patient just assumes that, quote-unquote, the doctor is going to take care of it. They may or may not know really much about what's going on with their treatment plan. I encourage my patients to bring paper, to write down their questions, and make sure, you know, to bring a person with them because you know, a lot of times when you're getting this kind of information from the doctor, it can be quite overwhelming. And having a person there with you can sort of help keep you on track and help be there to be a listener and say, hey, what did the doctor say and about such and such? I mean, I, th I think those things are really important. I think that it can be very hard as a patient when you're meeting a doctor maybe the first time or in the beginning when you're coming with your plan to try to keep everything organized. And then Quite frankly, on that same note, I really encourage my patients to keep up with their records. I mean, much the same way that it taxis and you would go to an accountant with all your tax information, you know, in the same way, you, you, it's really good if the patient can keep up with their records and have them with, with you. Because when you're seeing a number of different doctors, it, it can be somewhat of an obstacle. 
in terms of knowing what's been going on. And if a patient does have that information with them or have access to that information, it can be very, very helpful. I'm sure that uh, you know being a part of a collaborative team as you are is you know being you know kind of you know each of you are from your own individual groups, but at the same time part of the overarching cancer institute. So I'm sure that helps some with that flow. But uh, I think that that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that you do have homework. You do have some things that you need to do that will help you know make you have the or at least give you the greatest chance of a, a good outcome. And that is you know just like you say, if the, the more information you have readily available. For somebody, I'm sure that that reduces the risk that something might, you know, a vital piece of impo uh, information might be overlooked. Um, how about you? Um, I agree with everything that's been said so far. I would strongly uh, encourage patients with the diagnosis of lung cancer to actively seek out um, professionals who manage lung cancer in a very multidisciplinary fashion, and also um, specifically look for clinical trials that apply to their specific setting. And you know, at our institute, we're really lucky in that we have um, a, a clinical research group that works very closely with patients. And if we don't have a clinical trial that is within our system, we help patients find clinical trials that are appropriate for them uh, nationally. Um, and we continue to open uh, uh, very molecularly driven clinical trials uh, for our patients. We are like the first site in the state of Georgia to open the lung map trial. Historically, our patients with squamous cell lung cancer have had very limited options, especially in the second-line setting. And uh, this is a NCI-directed trial wherein uh, the patient's uh, tumor is re-biopsied, the, gen the genome is interrogated. We look for four specific mutations, and there are four drugs that are targeted if patients have the specific mutation in question. And then there is an arm for an immunotherapy, which is basically getting your own immune system to wake up and recognize the cancer and fight it. So there are many options like this, uh, you know, that, that patients should avail of uh, in these uh, situations. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Simpson. How about you, Dr. Wiggers? These guys said it all. I agree. Ask questions, be your own advocate, and go to a place that, um, that the doctors talk and have a multidisciplinary approach. Great. I agree with all that, and I think one of the things that's unstated that it's hard to quantify, but I think patients uh, need to think positive. Uh, they need to have a goal-oriented approach. We see from uh, our unfortunate stage four patients uh, that a lot of them will, over time, have a bad outcome, but the ones that think positive, they've quit smoking, they're out doing some walking and exercise, watching their diet. Uh, their goal is to you know, get through Christmas, to, to go get to their next scan to get through their chemotherapy, to get through their radiation, and they set goals at each point along the way, those patients do much better than the ones who have a fatalistic approach up front where everything, uh, oh no, I have more another chemotherapy coming up, or oh no, this and that. And it's hard, it is hard, but I think that's part of our role too as healthcare providers to encourage them throughout that process. So. Yeah, that's right, I, I believe that my, myself, you know, I agree with the notion that your, your your emotional and psychological approach and your estate, uh, where you keep yourself and how you look at your situation, can certainly play a role in terms of you know how how your health goes. Uh, you know, I can't. It, I'm sure it's hard to quantify, but I'm sure just from an anecdotal perspective, you you know if you look at your patient population over time, those that have that positive outcome or positive outlook anyway, um, tend to you know either go further or do better overall in, in general so uh, thank you all for sharing that and it, just before we jump off I wanted to make sure that the listeners know that if they do have questions uh, about the services that are available to them through Northside Hospital and through the Northside Hospital Cancer Institute there is a call center that's available to you to get information and get some questions answered and they can point you in their direction of other resources that are available within the uh, Institute and that number for you is 404-531- 4444. Again, it's 404-531-4444. Make sure you go online uh, to the Northside Hospital website. That's northside.com. And of course, they're on Twitter and Facebook as well. And be sure to link up with them uh, on those uh, social media pages because they're putting out great information on a regular basis that could help you or the ones you love. Uh, thank you all uh, here at the table for taking time out of your busy day. Uh, obviously, your practices are extremely busy taking care of these folks on, on an ongoing basis, so I really uh, respect and appreciate the fact that you were able to take time 
uh, to share this information with our listeners. Um, thank you to Northside Cancer Institute for collaborating with the show today to make this panel available and uh, possible for us to have this discussion. So uh, we look forward to more great information coming out from future shows we're going to be doing with them down the road. Be sure you tune in to, uh, to uh, Top Docs. Uh, on the podcast if you if you missed the show or you want to share it we'll have the podcast up on the website at topdocs.businessradiox.com of course we're on twitter at topdocs on brx and facebook at the same handle thank you all very much for making us a part of your day today thank you all very much for being here and we'll see you all next week same time same place 